So we'll chant the foremost Arahant Bhikkhuni chant in Pali. I sent to Chitranai for the last evening. And uh, when we, uh, you will receive um, a document with all links to various to the books we've been reading from and to online resources. And part of it will be this chant and us chanting it. And on the website there are also other versions of um, Mel Ziki chanting it, who was a, a nun for some years in Amravati in England, and she made the tune that we use for the chant. Tapita agatanam hisata sotin karotuno Mahapanyanangata kemateriti pakata Savika bunda seta sasata sotin karotuno Vinyayatarinanga. It's wrong? I think it's Tariupalavana. Do we do that already? Let's do it. Okay. Tariupalavana chayidimantina muttama Savika buddha seta sasata sotin karotuno Vinyayatari nanganga patachara tivisuta tapita agatanam hisata sotin karotuno jai jai kanang pikuni nang nanda namasa agatana tita ahusata sotin karotuno arata viriyanang agasona teritinamika Tapita tatatanam hisata sotin karotuno Dipachakukang agasakula iti visuta Visuta nayana sapisata sotin karotuno Kundala kesi pikuni kipa binyana muttama Tapita yevatanam hisata sotin karotunom Teri kapilani pubbajati namanusari Tasang yeva pikuni nang sata soting karotuno Teri tubada kachana mahabinyana muttama 
Chine nasukatu kangsa sata soting karotuno. Luka chivaratari nangaka kisapikotami. Tapita akatanam hisata soting karotuno. Sikala mata pikuni sata dimutanam utama. Karotuno mahasanting arogyam chasukang sata. Anya pikuniyo sambana nagunatara pahu. Palentuno sambapayaso karokati sambawa. Sotapana tayo se kasata panyasiladika. Pagaso kile satahana sata soting karotuno. So we'll sit for 30 minutes.
So uh, this is a note that was left a few days ago from, for um, the Aya, Ayas, and uh, it's a quote from the Samyutta Nikaya, the book of uh, connected discourses, and uh, I think it's important to read this out. And it's uh, so on this retreat, you know, some years ago, it was scheduled as the first free women retreat, and some people signed up for that, knowing that book. And then uh, over the years, uh, you know, since the pandemic and all, uh, we've, you know, we decided to change it to a Terry Guitar retreat. So it's sort of connected but not the same and and also not a completely different theme and uh, so you'll if you've heard us reading and you see on the walls you know, different translations which which come out slightly differently and then the the nature of the poems of the first three women which is which are a different a quite different approach and they have their own power and their own transmission quality um, for some people, and uh, and they are different from the you know the original poems of the awakened nuns. So, I'd like to read this uh, for everyone. This this note, and it's 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 simply a quote from this from the Sutta Sognita Nikaya, and it's important. In the course of the future, there will be monks because who won't listen when discourses that are words of the Tathagata, deep, deep in their meaning, transcendent, connected with emptiness, are being recited. They won't lend ear, won't set their hearts on knowing them, won't regard these teachings as, as worth grasping or mastering. But they will listen when discourses that are literary works, the works of poets, elegant in sound, elegant in rhetoric, the work of outsiders, words of disciples are recited. They will lend ear and set their hearts on knowing them. They will regard these teachings as worth grasping and mastering. In this way, the disappearance of the discourses that are words of the Tathagata deep, deep in their meaning, transcendent, connected with emptiness, will come about. Uh, Thus you should train yourselves. We will listen when discourses that are words of the Tathagata. We will regard these teachings as worth grasping and mastering. That's how you should train yourself. So Mutanikaya 27, Ani Sutta, the peg. And then it says Samana Drum. Oh, Samana Drum, yes. Samana Drum. So I think that's an important um, perspective to bring in. And uh, it's, it's uh, some of you know that there was a, there was a, a quite a very strong reaction to the book the first three women and particularly because of the the uh, categorization of it that it was categorized as a 
with the Library of Congress as a translation, which would put it next to the suttas in any library, and also in universities and so on. And so that was... Uh, so that the, the publishers re- retracted it and and reissued it, and that's what we've been reading from the the reissue. So, um, you know, the teachings of the Buddha, the the early scriptures, the original the original teachings are, are very very important to take care of. So it's important that we don't lose those in the process of making the the teaching our own. And I think I said before that, that um, for some people, and I was certainly one of those people for quite a number of years, for some people the suttas are, are really difficult to digest. They're, they're too dry, they're, they're kind of hard to um, make one's own. And for some people they're not at all. For some people they're just wonderful and dive in. And, I'm, and it's not even people. So I was one of the people back in the past who found them very difficult to access and now I really enjoy and delight in reading the suttas so it can change in oneself um, so there are, there are you know there's there are all always these polarities at play in the world it's part of samsara <laughs> where there are those who are conserving and, and protecting and there are those who are um, uh, innovating and creating and those two forces are, are constantly at play, and they need, you know, we, we, it doesn't work if we only have one or only have the other. So the, there are those who are protecting the, the suttas and making sure that they're carefully translated, that they're passed on, that people know what is what. Also, so there are those who are, who are translating. There's also people like Venerable Analio who's helped to tease out and make clear to people, you know, this is early Buddhism, this is later, this is, you know, Commentary. This is uh, later suttas that were added, and so those sort of things are helpful to know. And it doesn't mean that we only look at the original teaching and we throw everything else away, but that we know what is what. So I wanted to share that as the first part of our evening. And also, there's a, a mentioning in the sutta somewhere. I don't know exactly where. You know, where the Buddha also encourages that the teaching need to be expressed, you know, in the language of the of the people. Mm-hmm. So where one goes, you know, one tries to uh, find a language which can be understood in that area. And in a way, you know, do I see Mary Weingast's work falling in that somehow, you know, that he was trying to reach people who you know, don't have a, a understanding yet about, you know, the, the suttas or the different, you know, parts of the teaching, but who can, in, on a different level, you know, get a intuitive understanding. And uh, so it was, you know, a completely different approach. And Mary Weingast, you know, is, is fluent in Pali, so he has very well, you know, read and understood the text, and then he did his own uh, process, and uh, it's certainly not a translation at all, and some of them are very, very different than the original texts, but, you know, as Ananda Bodhi said, for some people it can still be a very uplifting and heart-opening experience, and can help, you know, to open a different window, and for me, you know, it was like that and uh, 
but I can also completely understand that for some people it doesn't do anything. And uh, it was really unfortunate, you know, that the first uh, book was uh, miscategorized and that has thrown up a lot of uh, controversy and uh, that was very unfortunate, really. And uh, But I also see, you know, the, the complementarity which is something which can be very uplifting to some people and and for others, you know, to be is it's a complete disaster. So it's a huge spectrum of uh, like how it is in samsara. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also very important to to categorize things in the right way, so one has no doubt what is what. And that book that was a real mistake, and yeah, the publishers have rectified that mistake Mm -hmm. and of course it wasn't like a thing which could be done in a minute or two it took some time yeah but it has been done and you know tomorrow these books will be out here in the bookstore and that's the second edition the first edition had a reddish cover and now the second edition has a green greenish bluish cover yeah and the poems are almost identical in the second edition. I think <coughs> I think Maddie did take off a line or two here and there, but pretty much the same. It's the more the introduction and so on, and the categorization that's different. So I just wanted to start with that. So I have here a simple question. What is coarse cloth and what is the significance for Kisa, Kisa Gotami? Coarse cloth is just one of the kind of ascetic practices, Tutanga practices, that, you know, someone wears coarse cloth. And, or, you know, cloth which has been picked up on the road or cloth which has been picked up from corpses or thrown away cloth, you know, which is then made into strips and then, you know, sewn together for a rope. And, you know, still today our ropes have this pedi- rice paddy field pattern. Even, you know, they are not, uh, it's not sewn together from lots of strips, but the pattern is still, it's still uh, on the rope. And it was, was an ascetic practice. Like, I think today still, you know, in some Christian orders, isn't it, the, there's a certain kind of cloth also. They, uh, they, some people, I don't know if people are doing it today still, uh, Know, wearing very coarse cloth, just as a as a way of uh, not quite sure um, what they're up to, if that's really helpful. But that's what people do. You know, it's nice to wear (laughs) silky clothing or soft. No, but uh, you know, the hair 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 cloth. I was that called in. in, It's really kind of yeah, quite extreme. In the old days in the Christian tradition. Yeah, I think Mm -hmm. I'm not sure anyone's still doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But with Kisa Gotham it's just that she, you know, that she wore uh, robes which were probably quite unpleasant, you know, to the touch. Mm-hmm. And it was considered, you know, a, a extreme practice of uh, renunciation. And for some people, that might be uh, beneficial. It must have been beneficial to her because she fully awakened, you know. <laughs> no doubt. Mm-hmm. 
öffnen. Ja, ja. Uh, you talked about a practice for greed, imagining that was me, imagining what things turn into when you eat them. What is a similar type of practice for anger? So the, the recommended practice for anger is using the four elements. So reflecting on the four elements, earth, water, fire and air, here, that this body is made up of the four elements and that whoever it is you're really angry with is also made up of the four elements and that between you and them are the four elements. So you're, you're taking away the, the personal, the self, the other, and it's just elements here, elements there. And also when one works with the elements you know, here, the, all of the feelings and the, and the uh, agitation kind of doesn't have anywhere to land. There's no sort of personal for it to, to, to land in. So that's the practice, to contemplate the four elements here, to experience them here and experiencing them in the other. It's a good practice, very grounding. That's a very short one. And then I do another one after that. Yeah? If all beings awakened and, these, and there were no more rebirths, what would still be alive on the planet? <laughs> I don't think we have to worry about that. Awakened beings. <laughs> Can you say a little about the lineage you follow? Mm-hmm. Whose is your home base? Why are you are your robes that color? Which color? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that the robes, let me start there, you know, some lineages, they have, you know, very clear color. For example, in the Yachanchar lineage, the monks have a kind of ochre color and the nuns, chocolate brown. But usually, you know, the robes are often given. And in our case, you know, we got some of the robes we wear, as, as we saw ourselves. But for example, the outer robe that was given to me and... Uh, so if we make ourselves robes, we make it in the color, and another body has that. Recently made. Just finished the day before I left for the retreat. <laughs> so we try, you know, to go in that, uh, that direction of uh, rust brown, I think. Yeah. But the, and whatever my question. So can be, the, the, the robes can be you know, a, a variety of colors that would be like natural colors, sort of browns or, or um, oranges or, or yellows, that kind of range. And the lineage which we, uh, we, we follow, I mean, we, as we said earlier, you know, we are now belong to the lineage of the bhikkhunis and, and Mahabhachapati Gautami was the first leader of the bhikkhuni sangha. And... We don't anymore you know, belong to a lineage of any kind of teacher who is alive. Because we once have you know, belonged to the Ajahn Chah lineage, but for reasons we have already spoken about, we left that lineage in 2011, and now we are on our own, so to say, in the lineage of the bhikkhunis. 
And, and um, the Buddha actually discouraged the whole thing about lineages. The lineage, lineage has become a really big thing in Buddhism, and people always want to know, well, what's your lineage? Who's your teacher? So, you know, when the Buddha, obviously the Buddha was the leader of the lineage, and, and, and still is actually, but in, the, in his time. And uh, when he was coming towards the end of his life, he was asked, you know, who will, who will you hand on the, the, the lineage to? And, you know, who will be your successor or successors? And he said, I give you the Dhamma and the Vinaya. So the teaching and the discipline. The teaching and the discipline are, are my successors. So he was very clear. Like, no, he didn't pass it on to this monk or that Arahant Bhikkhuni. It was like, no, the Dhamma and the Vinaya are, are the lineage. So as long as we're living from there, we're all part of the same lineage, whether you want to call it Mahayana, Theravada, Vajrayana, Zen, you know, it's the Dhamma and the Vinaya that are the lineage. Yeah, and, and our home base, so to say, is Aloka Vihara Forest Monastery in California at this point. Which is close to Sacramento. Okay. I think this might be for both of us. What's that? Why have you not attained full awakening? (laughs) 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 I kind of want to ask it back. (laughs) What do you think holds you back? Mm -hmm. Yeah, greed, hatred and delusion. It's, a, it's, it's funny, you know, because I think that that's probably a common question, because like, we've been in the monastic life for like 30 years now, it's long, almost, yeah, 30 years, it'll be 30 years coming up, almost, not quite, and uh, yeah, why haven't we re- realised awakening already, and it, you know, it's, uh, one comes into this practice with, into this, on this path with lots of past karma, you know, you kind of got to work through stuff, and even though you may understand the teaching and you may have really even seen really clearly, there's still, there are still things to be worked out. And that you can't make it happen. You can't just decide, like, okay, I'm going to do it. You have, to, you have to make your way through the, the um, ripening of past karma, wholesome and, and unwholesome. So it's, it's a, it's a, it'd be great if you could just decide and go for it, but it's, it's not like that. So what one can do is stay with it. What we have done, both, is stay with it. Not give up, not, uh, not decide to go and do something else. But, you know, it's like Ajahn Chah would say, you know, you plant the seed, you plant the mango seed back in Thailand. You plant the mango seed and you take care of it, but it's not your business how quickly it grows, when it, when it bears fruit, you know, when the fruit's ripe, that's not your business. You just tend that seed and that, that sapling and that tree until the ripening happens in its own time. So that's so it hasn't ripened yet fully. But we're still looking after the trees. Okay. <clears throat> I'm in a helping profession that talks about compassion fatigue. Can we ever get fatigued by compassion or if we do get fatigued in working with those who are suffering, perhaps it's not from compassion. Mm -hmm. 
I have heard, you know, that there is uh, speaking about compassion fatigue. And I think, you know, it's really important that uh, to include oneself also in the circle of compassion. So not just like others who need help, but oneself as well, because one can't really help if one completely exhausts oneself. And also, you know, the difference between compassion and... Between compassion and, and empathy... You know, compassion is purely the wish, you know, may all beings be free from harm and the intention to harm. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that we have to completely, you know, uh, lose ourselves in the work to help others. And I think that compassion fatigue means there's a certain kind of uh, wisdom missing, you know. If one goes that far, that one forgets about oneself in a way which is, you know, completely taking one down. And, and you know, sometimes one has to push the boundaries, you know, of what one thinks one can do. But if one, on a constant basis, lives like that, that's just not working, that's not very wise. And, as I said, you know, wisdom and compassion are the two sides of, of a coin, so to say. So, compassion without wisdom is not real compassion, I would say. Because, you know, it, uh, if one overestimates oneself to that degree or deems oneself so important, you know, that there's nobody else who can also join in the helping, there's something not quite adding up, I would say. What is a Nietzsche? Everything is a Nietzsche. Anicca means uh, impermanence, flux, change, and everything is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. So everything that's come together goes through a process and breaks up again. Everything. Everything, everything, everything. Do we re- reduce the suffering in the world if we protect our minds? It's the same question, more or less. Is it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's actually the same question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About, you know, not taking on more than we can uh, handle, actually. And, and, you know, that shouldn't also be like an excuse, but I think one can experiment and then, you know, find, find the middle way, you know, between... You know, being being kind of cowardly, you know, keeping cowardly away, or being uh, um, kind of attached so much, you know, to be the one who needs to do everything, and then completely, you know, exhaust oneself. Yeah. And you know, when I was uh, giving the instruction on karuna practice, that meditation. I started off by saying about how compassion, in the meaning of the word to suffer with, which is the literal meaning of compassion, it's, it's um, you know, that is one aspect of relating to the suffering of others. Um, but there's also this, this more settled intention which is to wish that all beings are free from harm and any intention to harm 
So I think that's that's another way of just like, you know, we can't fix everything. We can't make it all all right. But we can to, to just have that place of rest in a way inside that's still compassionate, but it's not ah oh, like that because that it, it gets exhausting. It's, it's a little bit ungrounded. And upeka also, the, the practice of upeka also helps of just, this is the nature, you know, bodies have the nature to get sick and, and faculties fade and wars happen. And, you know, this is, this is part, of, part of the nature of things. So that's, and it's not an indifference, but it's an acceptance of, okay, I don't, you know, I can't, I can't make it all right, but I can accept it and then do what I can within my capacity. Each of us. For those of us wondering, what advice do you have for deciding whether to pursue ordination? Well, I think it's a great opportunity in these uh, days of recognizing the limitations of samsara and uh, I would recommend that you go to a um, you know a monastery or go to spend time with a teacher or several places I actually would recommend you go to more than one place and and see how is it how is it working for you so when I knew that I wanted to be a monastic once I figured out where places were I had, a, I had a map of the UK with all these different Buddhist centers and temples and things. And I went to a few, I didn't go to very many actually, and then I landed at one and knew this is where I'm meant to be for that time. So that was Amravati Monastery. It was immediately clear, okay, this is the place. And, and, and being there, it was, it was clearly not perfect. There were things I didn't like about it, which mainly was the, the patriarchal setup. But it's like it's not—it's not perfect. But there's a, there's everything I need is here, and that was true for a long time. So I would say go to it, go go and go and visit monasteries. Go go check it out. See for yourself. Spend a bit of time if you have the inclination. The belong to so fit, fit together. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there were many awakened beings in the time of the Buddha. How many awakened beings? Oh, we had that one. We had okay. That one. Mm-hmm. And are there any living arahants? So I'm sure there are awakened beings, you know, in terms of those four stages of awakening, starting with stream entra up to arahant. But I don't know how many. <laughs> But there are certainly a good amount of stream entrants around. And, uh, but how many, I, I cannot say. And also, as, as I said, you know, you, it takes an arahant to recognize an arahant. And I'm not one, so I wouldn't be able to, to say. But I've definitely heard, you know, about certain teachers who were, were um, where there was said that they are arahants, mm-hmm. but I don't know if it's true. Mm-hmm. 
And somebody asked, uh, so this is something I mentioned, after, re- after retreat for three months, you mentioned it was heartbreaking to return to a world with war. How did you process that? What if someone has a history of trauma? Mm. I feel like um, you know, many, many, many people have a, many of us have a history of trauma and, and it can be, you know, it, it depends on what, what it is. So uh, if you have a history of trauma in war, you have to take really a lot of care. And I do know a number of veterans who have come to the Dharma and, um, you know, the, the trauma is still active, it still act, can be activated so that one has to take a lot of care around it. Um, and of course, you know, there are, there are many ways that we can help to heal trauma and some are more effective than others and some people heal more easily than others. So if you have trauma in relation to war or violence, you have to take a lot of care. Um, I, don't, I haven't lived through a war myself so far, so I don't have that... It doesn't land there for me. Um, and my experience was, um, I mean, I was, we were still in retreat and I was like taking homeopathic doses of news. I wasn't like going in depth. Um, the experience for me was this sense of just like heartbreak at, you know, the human potential and, and what we're doing. It was very, very sad. And also seeing a lot of beauty and, and nobility in people responding to Ukrainian refugees, you know, it's, it was all of it. And there was this sense of just like the heart breaking. And to be honest, it's broken kind of a lot of times, so it, it, it's not as painful as it was once upon a time. And then there's, there is that, there is also just that, for me, there's that, big picture of samsara it's like wow look at this you know what a what a crazy mess we make of this beautiful opportunity so and I don't know any you know I, like I know one Ukrainian you know I don't know anyone who's in that who's if I, if I had a friend who was in the middle of that I know that it would feel different so it's a little bit slightly removed for me. So, uh, so it was yeah that sense of heartbreak and and also like mm-hmm, this is samsara. So in a way, it's it's uh, it kind of spurs me on in the practice. Yeah. Why are anger and aversion written together for the five hindrances? Are those two things the same or interchangeable in Buddhism? Isn't aversion a lot broader than anger? Um, you know, normally I think it's written, it's written anger, isn't it? Um, I think ill will, I think it was. Or ill will sometimes, yeah. Mm. I just put, when I wrote it up, I just put also aversion because I felt... Uh, it's that it is 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 broader, you know. It can. I wouldn't always, you know, uh, when I have that experience, you know, of wanting to push things away, 
I think anger is more in relationship maybe to to people and aversion can be also like in relationship to situations or objects even, you know. So I, I thought I mentioned both. That was my addition. It's it's uh But they're kind of it's a big umbrella, isn't it? So it's yeah. like so like I mentioned about Halasei translating karma chanda as sexual desire and I would translate it as sensual desire which has got a bigger umbrella and this would also be like you know, aversion or ill will under which you could have lots of there's fear, aversion, anger, hatred, resentment. There's, there's a whole lot of yeah. whole, a lot of qualities. Do nuns have special pajamas? <laughs> <laughs> or leisure wear for behind monastery walls? Would you what? like to know? We're going to leave that one as a secret. How does one keep practice fresh after many years? I think, you know, to not be too attached to one way, a particular way of practicing, but just keeping an open mind and, you know, sometimes things kind of show up. I think if one is really uh, dedicated to the practice and something is needed, it somehow does show up, you know, in terms of maybe a book appears or, or somebody, you know, brings something. I have experienced it certainly, you know, in my practice like that. If one is really interested and dedicated, then uh, help, you know, is coming in the most unexpected ways to help us, you know, keep uh, keep the practice fresh, you know, as, as it's written here. But that can only really happen if one has, you know, the capacity to to notice. If one is too, too glued, you know, on a certain way, it has to be like this, or a bit closed-minded maybe, you know, too um, attached to a certain way how it must look in order to be worthy to call the practice, then that might not be so easy then to see, you know, when things turn up. Because they can often look very um, different than what one expects. That's my answer. Uh, Do nuns have fun? Any games or sports? Are you allowed to watch TV? Uh, or movies, what kind? Uh, we we are not allowed to watch TV, and we delight in not watching TV. <laughs> um, very occasionally, we watch a movie. So um, in Aloka Vihara, we uh, usually around Christmas time we might watch one or two movies, or Thanksgiving time we might watch one or two movies. 
and what kind will depend on who's decide, you know, we sort of who's who wants to see what. So uh, it might we've sometimes and we sometimes also watch documentaries like educational stuff once in a while. Um, yeah, we're not we're, we're kind of hard to please when it comes to. Entertain, don't want to waste our time. Yeah, exactly. We don't want to waste our time. <laughs> so there's not a lot of movies that we would be super interested in. But uh, and then in terms of uh, games or sports, so there is the. We watched a very nice movie with the, with the octopus. Oh, the octopus. Yeah, that was very beautiful. The, My octopus teacher. Have you seen that? That's so sweet. That's the kind of movie we would that's watch. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was very beautiful. Um, and at our at Aloka Vihara, we actually have a ping pong table. Oh. So um, one of our sisters is is very very good at ping pong and loves ping pong, and she's very energetic. And uh, it kind of ca- a friend of ours, an ex nun, visited some some years ago, and and she what she left a donation for something. I forget what she called it now. She anyway, she was something along those lines that. that Community building. Community building or something. I don't know what it, what it was now. And um, somebody had a ping pong table in their garage that they never used and they offered it to us. So we have a ping pong table and we play ping pong sometimes. And it's a very, a very interesting practice because it's super good at focus, um, uh, responsiveness, and uh, you know, working with or against someone so it's, it's actually kind of quite aligned to the practice and the reason we were sort of a little bit hesitant to do it because of course we have this rule about not playing games not like having entertainments and so on and then we found out that um, Saido Utegenia who you may have heard of loves ping pong plays it all the time so it's like oh, well if he can do it okay we're going to do it so we have a ping pong table yeah. but otherwise we don't really do sports or anything like that yeah, fun is um, yeah. well. It's, it'll be individual, different, play different some people. Some games at Christmas. Singing. With what? <laughs> <laughs>
such that it allows them to continue walking the path when not on retreat. I mean, you know, the basics are the five precepts and the three refuges, as said many times over. The five precepts are very important. Um, You know, and then you're having a meditation practice, a daily practice, maybe... You know, it, it's, it's not so important how long it is, but it's important that it has a regularity, and you know, maybe you know, one day off a week, and or two days even if need be, but really having a regularity and maybe having a, a place in your in your home, even a very small corner only, you know, which you use regularly for sitting, maybe with a little some uplifting image or a flower, a candle or something, you know, so you create a space which you can come back to every day and which which you can accumulate some good energy at that place. And also when you walk by, it reminds you. I think that's very, very important to have that. And then, you know, maybe, you know, have a, be part of a sitting group and come to a retreat once a year. Those are you know, ingredients which can help the practice to uh, become more stable. Yeah, and not you know not having too high aims and expectations because then one gets frustrated very quickly because he can't do it and it has to be realistic really. And twenty minutes, you know, starting with sitting twenty minutes, it's a good. Uh, way to start and then some days you know one has only five minutes so then you do five but it's it's the regularity you know which builds up like a certain good habit which over time you know it it it, it gains a momentum and that's not to be underestimated really you know that's uh, that's the whole fu- function of monasteries, really. That's why they have started, you know, to come into being, because people wanted, you know, a certain regularity because it builds up momentum. And in a monastery, it's it's kind of easier, of course, you know. But the same, you know, uh, thinking applies also to a practice at home. Thank you. So someone asks, is it normal to think of sad things and cry during meditation? When this happens to me, I do metta and wish myself compassion for my sorrow. I also try to feel where the emotion is in my body. Is this the right thing? Mm -hmm. So um, it's normal for sorrow, also old things to arise in meditation. Um... You know, it's very natural that when we settle and we're not distracting ourselves, we're not busy, we're not keeping uh, at a surface level, that sorrows, sometimes very old sorrows, can arise and be felt and be known. And certainly sitting here, from here, you know, it's, it's quite many times somebody will be crying and at different times, and it's a very normal thing in a retreat. Um... I wouldn't call it thinking about sad things because it, it, to me it's, it's um, a bit different, something arising in the retreat and, and sitting thinking about sad things is slightly different. But I, I think you may mean the sort of arising of some sorrow. And yes, you know, to have compassion for the, for the 
for the sad part of oneself is, is very skillful and to know where it is in the body is very skillful. And to move away from the stories, as I've said a number of times, to move away from the stories into the feeling of it and, and in compassion and patience, really, with the, with the process and, and letting it, listening, listening to what does it want to say. Sometimes the sorrow needs to be heard and witnessed and then we, once it's been heard and witnessed, it can settle down, it can be laid to rest. So this is just like a little addition to the, what I said before, a question, you know, how do you recommend continuing the practice in daily life? Is it trying to be mindful at all times? Is that practical? I mean, it's not going to be possible, I don't think, you know, for, for people like us. It has to be very, very far along the path to be mindful all the time. But it can be, you know, a, a guiding star, and you know, and I think it's especially important, you know, in situations where if something, you know, is if we know we're gonna today we're gonna meet that person which you know makes us uh, feel kind of angry or fearful or so on, and then really be very on the ball in terms of the mindfulness and really watch, you know, the reactions which come up in the body can really help to protect us to make you know, mistakes which then are difficult to rectify. And and then if certain things are coming up to question, you know, what's underneath, what's there, what kind of fear and so on. So I think to just, you know, in the beginning we probably, you know, be more kind of uh, mindful around situations which are very challenging and then, you know, become more and more... Um, Capable, you know, to use mindfulness also in in many other situations. For example, when we go shopping into the supermarket, we stand at the uh, checkout line. You know, while we are standing and waiting, we can, uh, you know, really kind of be be aware of the body standing. Or in other situations, when when there's a kind of you know empty time where we are waiting for something in a at a doctor's waiting room or for the bus to come or whatever. All of those moments, they can all be used for practice. There is no you know, kind of empty time anymore if we are practicing. It's more like a good opportunity for practice, really. It's, it's um, you know... So there is no, no time which we cannot practice if we remember it. But, you know, to be mindful 24-7, I, I think that will t- is not something which is very likely, you know, that we can, uh, we can do that. It's true. It, it, but we can, we can get to know the places where we, we lose mindfulness. There might be, often there are particular things where we kind of get lost. So with mindfulness, we get to see, we get to recognize what those are. You know, usually in hindsight, you can see, oh yeah, I lost it. Oh yeah, where was I when that was going on? And then we can start to recognize that there are certain leaky places. (laughs) (laughs) And then we take, you know, can take care of those. 
What is meant by intention? When we react mindlessly, automatically, what is the nature of intention in those situations? So uh, the Buddha gave the teaching to his son Rahula. He said, um, before you do something or say something, be aware of your intention. And while you're doing or saying something, be aware of, of your intention. And after you've done or said something, be aware of the effect that it's had. So, um, so when we're reacting mindlessly and automatically, then the in, there, we're not using intention. We've forgotten about intention. It's, it's old automatic pilot going on. There's no awareness, there's no clarity there's just the old habit playing out and sort of flooding the mind. Um, so, yeah, to the, and there are, there are like big overarching intentions. I find those kind of easier. <laughs> there's like the big intention of one's life or, you know, the overarching intention of where you want to, what's important to you, you know, what you want to cultivate, what direction you want to go in. And then there are the more immediate intentions in a in a an interaction or in a um, or just even at the beginning of a day or you know once you leave here when you open your phone you know being aware of intention just before not like halfway through <laughs> so they, they, it can help to bring mindfulness and clarity to what's going on and and to see what's what's arising you know when there's intention it doesn't mean that we don't have any greed, hatred and delusion operating, but we've got more chance of seeing it. And especially if one, one assesses after, you know, so like the before you do something, while you're doing it and, and after. If you, if you sort of assess that and check in, then you get to see more clearly what's going on and what was the result of that and, and why and so on. So that's helpful. Oh, I think we should finish them. No, we can't. How did the Buddha and bhikkhunis handle being falsely accused? It certainly happened quite a lot to the Buddha. He got quite a number of false accusations. Um... I actually don't know the details of how he handled it. Uh, I know that the truth was revealed and uh, he wasn't thrown around by it. Um, Uh, You know, isn't that that, uh, one story where, you know, somebody is is kind of very angry with the Buddha and then he says to him, you know, if you give food to somebody and they don't take the food, who is the owner of the food? And the man said, then the, the... and the one who has given it, if if it's not taken, it belongs to that one who has given it. And he says, you know, that's the same what I do with, with what you're saying to me. Mm-hmm. I'm just not going to accept that, and it belongs to you. I think that mm-hmm. would be a good that example fits. for yeah, that. Yeah. Well. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, what are you going to do one more? That's the last one, what I do. Okay. 
what are spiritual powers, what is the divine eye. I think Ayananda Bodhi already explained the divine eye is, you know, according to the scriptures, is um, you know, being able to see the arising and passing away of beings, you know, in which realm they, they are arising again. So the, often, you know, when people died, the Buddha would be able to say, you know, what kind of a stage of, of awakening they had uh, reached and where they were reborn. So he had the divine eye developed to be able to see that. And spiritual powers... There's the spiritual five spiritual faculties, the indriya and the five spiritual powers, the balas, that's uh, mindfulness, faith, wisdom, compa- um, um, samadhi, collectedness of mind and energy, virya, energy. And you know they are latent potential in our minds. Then they are, and when they are trained, then they become facu- the spiritual faculties. It's kind of uh, also a bit similar you know, to the seven factors of awakening. It's a it's a different way of looking at the f- f- different qualities of the mind which can be trained. And when they are unshakable, then they are called powers. And as long as they are in training not yet completely perfected their faculties. And I think from stream entry onwards, there I think are called faculties, as far as I know, but I'm not sure, actually. But they are called Bala when they are unshakable. Yeah. Okay, last one. Mm-hmm. How do awareness and sensation relate to one another? So awareness is aware of sensation. Sensation arises in awareness. Awareness is aware of anything. And sensation is an object of awareness that is arising and passing away. Thank you for all your fun and interesting questions. And uh, we just want to point out on the schedule for tomorrow is written that we meet at oh, yeah. at five forty five and wake up bellies at five fifteen. I think that's a mistake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're just gonna wake up bellies <laughs> at five thirty <laughs> and we meet at six. Yay. So <laughs> <laughs> get a surprise. This is just like to tomorrow. make you to make you feel <laughs> worried and then we can give you relief. But. Okay. Okay. So I forgot to do this yesterday, but uh, since it's our last night, although we'll have another chance tomorrow before we leave, let's uh, take in the goodness of our practice today. Just take a moment. And also to bring to mind all of the anyone in your life who's helped you, who supported you, or is supporting you to be here right now, who supported you to be here on this retreat in any way.
taking in the, the blessings of this practice, of this time, of this situation. Share the merits of your practice, the good energy of your practice in all directions for the benefit of all beings. May all beings in all realms be free from suffering. May all beings in all realms realize their true nature. May all beings in all realms be free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.